We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. With your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. It was quite the weekend. For us Gator fans, if you were in the swamp, a lot of energy, a lot of good times, a lot of weirdness, we've got a great episode today. We're going to break down all the things that happened in the South Carolina game. And true to form here, Alan, on this podcast, every week we think there won't be that much to discuss. There's always a ton of stuff to discuss. Uh, it's just it's just the way that it's been to be a fan of this football team. Uh, and if you like this podcast... Consider supporting... Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. That's on Patreon. You can become our patron, and that means you can give us a dono, which I know is the favorite word for all of you listeners out there for every single podcast. We had some new donos this week. Kyle Ikatani, longtime friend of the program and a medical doctor, so taking care of some people as well as taking care of his football needs, hopped on as a medium dono. And then Stephen Cruz joined as yeah, a what small up, donor. Appreciate the donos, guys. And of course, still the crowned king of donos, Alexander Leventhal. Uh, Alexander, just you, you should know now that you've become like a, a common word amongst our friend group. Like someone is the Alexander Leventhal of something else. Of something else, the king so of something. You are the, the king of Leventhal something. You are now the Alexander Leventhal of something. So this has really blown into a, a very huge and, and, and fantastic thing. Uh, as always, though, if you like the content, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, 
Uh, send us a message, talk to us, reach out to us. We'll be happy to answer any questions, thoughts, concerns, feedback that you have for the program. Alan, give us some opening thoughts. What a week. You know, we recorded this podcast next Monday, or last Monday. We didn't record it next Monday. Um, and we were all kind of hopeful about one Kyle Trask. Maybe he gets a shot. Maybe something happens, something different. And, of course, you know, honestly, poor guy breaks his foot or whatever happened. And, yeah, that's tough. I, one, I feel bad for that guy. Finally, maybe he gets a shot. We start the game. We're down 14-0. Not a lot of energy. 31-14. Oof. Not a lot going well for Gator Nation. But we turned it around. A win. I a significant win, maybe a good win. Certainly, let me go ahead and ask you that, James. Was this a good win? Like, yeah, we beat an SEC team. It's a good, solid win. Or was this like a great, significant win? So this is more interesting for me than I think it would have been. Because I'm going to tell you a little story before I answer this question. I had to leave this game with five minutes left to go. So it's the first time in my Gator fandom I've ever been at a game and had to leave early. My cousin was getting married in Tampa. I pushed it to the last possible second for leaving. So I walk out after we take the lead, and I'm basically jogging to 8th Avenue to get to my car. And I get in the car, and I turn on the radio, and I get to hear the postgame. I saw what happened on my phone, but I get to hear the postgame. And on the postgame, Mick Hubert and the guys were were glowing with with things like – this is the best win of the Dan Mola era. This is a turning point win. This is a significant win. And as I had gotten to my car, it did not seem to me that this was a a program-moving win. It was a good win. I thought it was a good win against an opponent that's not very good, that plays a lot of close games. Uh, like we talked about all year long, any win in this kind of season with this kind of roster is a good, gritty win. But it didn't seem to stick with me that it really mattered for the program one way or the other. At least certainly not like Mick Hubert had it. So I thought about it as I drove down to Tampa and thought, is this a program-defining win? As I sit here today, no, I still don't think so. I think it's a win that's really exciting because you had this really tumultuous week where you've got Franks, who is clearly public enemy number one. You've got Trask, who's everyone's favorite guy, breaks his foot. It kind of feels like no one even wants to go to the game. You go down big. You come back. The energy in the swamp was pretty fantastic. It was almost like all the real fans were at this game, if you will. And you had this really good experience in the swamp. Uh, and it was very satisfying uh, beating your former coach, Will Muschamp, who's kind of got you. So a lot of things about it feel good to me. It feels like a good win, not a great win. And it's not a great win to me because it doesn't really mean anything. We're not getting sure. anything for this. We're not going to win a crown for this. It's probably not going to do – you could say it helps with recruiting because of the atmosphere, and that's possible. But great to me is you got to win the most important games for it to be great, or there's got to be some significant moment that occurs where a new player comes in. That's like the future of your program. So for me, it's a good, satisfying win. I'm not taking anything out of it. But I don't think what McHubert said is this is like a program-defining moment for Dan Mullen. I'm not there with that, but I think it's solid. I'm, I'm happy about it. Yeah, I kind of feel both ways about it. It's not you know, a, a big win over Georgia or FSU when they're a top-tier team, or even a win like LSU. I think that was a bigger moment. There's much more energy. This was still a noon game, slow-developing crowd kind of a thing. But... When I think about it, if we don't win, okay, now put yourself in that place. I was already in that place in the middle of the game. I'm sure most of you were. We've just lost three consecutive games. And now we're heading into Idaho, a game that doesn't mean anything for us. Uh, we're going to win. And then not a lot of confidence heading into FSU, probably, which is we'll get to that next week. 
uh, spoiler for me, that's almost a must win for to consider this season the kind of success you want it to be. And so I, now I think we head into that Idaho week and we feel good about where we're at or feel a lot better about where we're at. Still a lot of things to fix. And then that I think that more easily translates into FSU. So I think almost it's not a great win, but it would have been a bad loss. That's probably more where I sit. Um, but I, I'm thankful for this win. There was moments during the game when we're down again. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to the end of the Muschamp or the end of McElwain era where I'm like, does this even matter? We scored. We're going to get blown out. And then you're kind of in those moments where you're like, maybe I don't want us to score. Maybe because then the coach will get fired. Of course, Mullen's not going to get fired. I don't want him fired. Nobody does. But it just felt like we're in this slump that we can't get out of. And then, you know what? I guess we did. So, James, this is a weird game. Do you feel like there was a turning point in this game? Or is it maybe just a slow reversal? Sitting in the stands with you as this game went on, it, it it was it was so weird. I mean, fourteen nothing, fourteen fourteen, thirty one fourteen. Four minutes and fourteen seconds left to go in the third quarter. And at that point in time, you didn't necessarily think the game was over yet because the second half had felt different than the first half. You know, you had the, the Kadarius Tony fumble on the punt. Well, it was like a two steps forward, one step back kind of game. Like we could never get any momentum. Every time we did something good, we did something bad. Correct, and it kind of had. In a way, the same feeling as the Missouri game, if you would have put Trask in maybe a little earlier, where I felt like we could have actually come back in that game too, although Drew Locke is a different animal than what we face in South Carolina. So I don't know what to what to say to answer this question, because even, even reflecting on it, looking back on it, being in the moment on it, there is certainly no turning point. You no. can't even find on film a moment where the like game Like no turnover, changes. no like someone goes out of the game or comes into the game, no like back-breaking fumble or... You know, a a long touchdown where you were like backed up on your own goal line or something like that. But I think it proves one of the old adages of of football, which is if you can successfully run the ball and control the time of possession, you can make comebacks like that. Uh, you have to be able to stop teams running the football. We saw what happened when we couldn't do it against Missouri, right? And we saw what happened to South Carolina when they could not do it against us. That's the real answer to the story: is we're able to just hand the ball off time and time and time again, even though we're down thirty-one fourteen. And not only score, but score pretty quickly in a very safe and efficient manner. And you just cannot allow teams to do that. Now, there's a there's a, a bigger question here, maybe, Alan. I think we both would agree there's not really a necessary turning point. Maybe not even a slow reversal. It's kind of fast. It was like, you know, 14 minutes of game time and we took a lead. True. But we just consistently ran the ball and they couldn't stop us. But here's maybe the bigger question. Is this must championess, if you will, or Mullen wizardry? From 414 on in this game, more Mullen or more Muschamp that led to this sort of comeback win? I don't want to take anything away from Dan Mullen because I think he did well, and we'll talk about where he did well. But I'm going to put this on Will Muschamp mostly. You knew this was coming. There was a moment, it was the end of the first half where I don't really totally agree with our all of our decision making, but we started calling timeouts because we, we knew that they were going to go conservative. And I knew Muschamp was going to go conservative in the second half. It's who he is. It's what he does to his major detriment they lost another game that they should have won i think in large part because they got too conservative now if they play well and are conservative they still win the game so it's not just that but he let us back in we saw it when he was here it's still happening in south carolina so if i'm going if you're going to put me on a scale i'm going to say like 60 percent must championess 40 percent mullen wizardry you? Yeah, I think that's maybe it's even higher because you can not only see in the play calling. So there were 14 
runs called and 10 passing plays called in the second half. In the first half, they were pretty balanced, but that's a little bit of a mirage. What's more important on film is they became very down predictable. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but that's must champ to a T is he becomes very down predictable. You know you're going to run it on first and second down. You know you're going to pass it on third down. Or and, a con- and probably a safe conservative pass. Even their long play was just a slant. It wasn't like taking the top off the defense. Right, and either you know they're going to they're gonna throw it on first down then run it on second and third down. It's very predictable patterns. And we covered this ad nauseum on the podcast uh, when we first started it, how frustrating it was to watch that kind of stuff happen. And it happened against us, which is great. Fun fact, Alan... Muschamp's winning percentage is now 571 at South Carolina, which is exactly the same as it was at Florida, which when he Congrats, left this Will. program, we had conversations about could he figure it out? And my answer was no, because again, you can't find evidence of coaches figuring it out. And for whatever reason, and this is just one meta comment I like to make in life, you climb the ladder as high as you can go. And then eventually you typically can't go any higher. You have some sort of mental block or some issue with your character makeup. Or a talent deficiency. Correct. Some talent deficiency, some thinking situation. That's human nature. That's okay. And the best example of this is minor league baseball. You grind and grind and grind. And eventually you look in the mirror and say, am I good enough to make it to the bigs? And if you aren't, then you you sort of wash out and you're done. There's no shame in that. It's the same thing with coaching. Not everyone has the ability to become an elite coach. Even if you on the outside could say, well, wait a minute, if he just fixes this, a lot of times they just can't fix that. He can't. And that's just like telling a pitcher, well, if you can just locate your curveball a little better, well, you can't. You kind of just can't do it. And I think with Muschamp, we we reaped the benefit of, of his character, of his nature to get up like this in a game that they were controlling on offense. We really were not stopping them passing the football. And then they went into a shell and thought, we will just bleed this game out. And Mullen didn't have to do any wizardry, but he was smart with how he recognized Allen using game theory he understood his opponent. He didn't panic because he knew this is a guy that's going to play conservatively. Correct. I don't have to take chances. Odds are I'll get back into this game being normal. And that's very smart. We can't underestimate that. That's very smart. A lesser coach may have panicked. Mullen did not. He recognized who he was going against. And the game played out. And Muschamp was Muschamp. And, and Mullen wound up, I think, getting us a victory. So certainly Mullen gets credit for recognizing that. But all in all, it did feel really good, Alan, to be on the other side of a must champ sort of take the air out of the ball conservative. Right. And I think, you know, he probably has improved, but it's harder to to win consistently at South Carolina than it is at Florida, but not enough where he's going to take South Carolina and and win big there. I mean, you have to be a Steve Spurrier level coach, I think, to do that or a rising star, you know, with a ton of talent. And now I, I do want to say about Dan, I, I don't want to take anything away from, like you said, I think he identified the factors in the game. Uh, I think he can manage our resources really well. He does all the things I expect him to do. Now they haven't had perfect, you know, the Missouri game, go back and look, it wasn't, that wasn't a great coaching effort by them, but it wasn't awful, but this was a pretty good one. Um, but Will Muschamp, you are who you are. God bless you. We'll see you again next year. Okay. I don't want to bury the lead anymore here, James. The big story coming out of this game was Felipe Franks, and not for the usual Felipe Franks storylines. Now, we were in the stadium, and so we didn't really know this was happening. But if you're watching at home, I think this was the dominant story of the game. Uh, Felipe Franks shushing the crowd by basically holding his finger up to his lips or the front of his helmet uh, after each of his touchdowns. Now, I'll say LeMichael Pirine also did this at one point. Um but that's a little bit less of the narrative in response to the booing. I think that he got last week that he was getting in this game. 
You heard me last week talk about how much I hated booing college players. I still do. But let's talk about Felipe for a minute. How did you feel about him shushing the crowd like that? I think Dan Mullen said this best after the game. This is a a 20-year-old kid. He's emotional. Mullen told him, according to the post-game press conference, he told him all week that you're going to get booed. Mm -hmm. He said, look, I was here when Chris Leak was here. Chris Leak was one of the best quarterbacks in the SEC numbers-wise, and he would get booed. Chris Leak would get booed, I think, a lot of times because he seemed soft the way he played on the field. But look, Florida fans, we are where we are. Well, they were booing, just almost not booing Chris, but booing the coaches for taking Tim out. That was part of it. But that, that's, those things are connected. But also because Chris was soft and yeah. the duck under sacks. And it's football. and It is what it is. I mean, look, there's a lot of this that has to do with gladiatorial combat. We are, it's just, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but Dan Mullen, I think, does understand the culture of that. I think it was wise of him to prepare his quarterback to get booed. I think that's Certainly. smart. So Franks expected it. And I think that's partially why Franks was ready to prove the doubters wrong. I will say this, though. Do I mind that he shuts the crowd? You know, you shouldn't do that. However... Felipe Franks was was like running the ball with a new fire lit underneath him. And if this were the old days, Alan, there's plenty of cases where motivation works like this. You light a fire under someone by getting under their skin. And I'm not advocating for that, but I think it worked in the standpoint of the fans clearly got under Franks' skin. And he obviously had a personal vendetta against them. Is that what you want? No, but I'm with you. If you're a fan and you're booing a college kid, and you guys hear me in this podcast every week. I mean, I'm pretty ruthless with my opinions on what I think the quarterbacks are doing. I'm never going to boo Felipe Franks. I'll boo coaches. I'm not going to boo a player. He's doing his best. He's a college guy. Yeah, no way. So do you expect him to honestly not feel that emotionally? You get a former guy who's his teammate saying that he should be benched. You get all these things going out there. and He's going to feel that. So I'm not that upset about it. I don't think Dan Mullen was that upset about it. I think Dan Mullen would be very upset about it if it happened again. I think this was maybe the one week where you give him a pass and say, hey, look, it's not a good look for you personally. It's not a great look for the leader to be doing this. Uh, If he was a junior or even a guy who I think had more respect, I think Mullen would have acted differently. But Franks is who he is. He's not that kind of guy. And if anything, Alan, this is maybe the most important point for me. If you look at Franks taking that action and you look at it as a symptom of other things in his football life, it doesn't bode well. The quarterback is your leader and your emotional center. composure center, if yeah. you will. And if this guy is going to score a touchdown when the bullets are flying and shush the crowd and give the strong symbol and do it multiple times, he's not getting it. That's also not the guy you want to be leading your program. Just not the guy. But the reality is that's maybe more who Franks is than anything else we've seen. That's just who he is. And I'm not going to fault him for that because he's a kid playing college football. That's who he is. That's what he is. We're kind of stuck with that scenario for now. But no, this is not something I'm going to get super mad about, although I'm going to say didn't like it, won't like it. If it happened again, it would be much worse than happening right then. But it's hard to blame the emotions that came out of him, especially given how the game was going, how he gets booed the first three passes he throws, uh, which, again, they're frustrating passes, but I think that set him up for like extra level of anger and frustration. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this complicated topic? Yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle with you. I don't hold it against Franks, really. I mean, that's got to be tough. You're, the people who are supposed to be supporting you are booing you. And not because you did something egregious, like you broke the law or you abused somebody. Like, There's reasons that you could boo someone, but he's playing poorly, and that's not it. And it's not like he's slacking out there and not trying. He's playing hard. So I think the people who are booing got what they deserved, 
But James, I think you're right. This is not how you want your quarterback to respond. Now, again, it's almost impossible not to feel that way. If you're getting booed, you want to shut those people up. I don't know how you can be a competitor and not feel that. But then what you show on the field is that's probably not good. Now, if I'm Dan Mullen, the thing I don't want that I can't have is an adversarial relationship between my team and my fans. Those those two groups of people have to be in harmony and coexist because they're both needed for success of a football program for the life of a university. If you have your fans upset at the players and your players are indignant or bitter towards the fans, that's not going to lead you to a place of success. So again, a moment here, but this can't be a recurring thing. And I think you have to, if you're Dan Mullen, you have to watch this really carefully because this could curdle into something bad. Now, you know what? Frank's shushing the crowd and some booers and some haters is fine, but that's got to be where it ends. Otherwise, you're in a bad place. And like you said, you want your quarterback to be able to handle this kind of stuff. And not to say, oh, you're emotional and you did something that means you can't be the quarterback. But I think it just is another thing in Felipe Franks' profile that leads you to believe that maybe he isn't the guy moving forward that you want him to be, for better or worse. Um, again, I'm not super upset at him. Um, he is a kid. When I was 20 years old, I don't know that I had the kind of composure I would want from a 20-year-old. So if you're out there and you're really upset about at him, I don't know. Maybe it's not that big a deal. And also, if you're like, yeah, that was awesome, I don't know if that's a really good take either. Somewhere in the middle, we'll see how Felipe responds this week. Um, we'll see how Mullen, we'll see how the fans respond. Um, hopefully with more support. Now, after Chris got booed that one week, I will say the coaches got booed is how I felt more like as a fan. The next time Chris came out the next week, I think the fans thought about it and he got a little bit of an extra cheering at certain points. Cause I think people also wanted to know, Hey, we appreciate you and what you're doing. And those people who are booing don't represent all of us. Any other thoughts on it here on Frank's and the shushing saga? I, I think Mullen handled it. Well, you could have gone to the mic after the game and blasted the fans for that. And that would have been the wrong move because of what you just said. That would have set up a very adversarial relationship. And I think Mullen understands, like we said, sort of the gladiatorial nature. And he also understands Florida, which is why it's really important that he's the guy that's here. He understands that the Florida fan base can be difficult, which is true of any fan base that has expectations, by the way. It's not just Florida. And because he understands that, he's able to prepare his quarterback to say, look, you play one of the hardest positions in all of sports. There's a lot that's on you. This fan base has suffered through eight, nine years of really poor quarterback play. Yeah, it's not it's just not him that they're your they're fault. That all out. of this venom is coming out towards you. This is a bad relationship for eight or nine years, and you're just the newest face of it. And that's not fair to Franks. And Franks doesn't always help himself because of how he handles himself. But at the same point in time, Franks, by all accounts, is not going out and getting in trouble or doing other things that other guys have done. He's more or less a, a nice guy around campus that's doing things, whatever the case may be that he's doing. Uh, and... I think that this was handled well because it didn't blow up, Alan. You're not hearing about this today. This was not the lead story on ESPN. And it could have been. It could have been. Uh, and had we lost, maybe it would have been. Maybe it would have been. And winning really helps this. Uh, and that's maybe the most important lesson Yeah, maybe here. that's the bigger part of the win is that it wipes away some of these feelings. Is You you may have very well had a very different public reaction in pushing the crowd if we had lost the game or if he had fumbled on that fourth down at the end or create your own narrative so hopefully that's the end of that and the last time it happens if it happens again my reaction will be very different i think you have graced this period for him 
but it cannot happen again. I think that's got to be clear to Felipe. No more of that. Time to rein this stuff in. Get yourself together. Okay, let's look at the game analysis section of this week's pod. Um, there's some interesting stuff that happened here for us on offense. Our game plan was pretty much what we thought of. We were going to try to run the ball. That was really our goal. And not surprisingly, especially with not having Trask, uh, I think our, our preparation was to have very short, easy throws, which most of the game was. We didn't take a single shot downfield, Alan, um, the entire game. We didn't have to, per se, but almost every pass, especially in the first half, was less than five yards. That was all by design. Keep Frank safe. In fact, the one time he rolled out and threw a horrible pass, he got booed the most voicefully. So I think that was smart by Mullen, showing yet really good astute management. And of course, we went under center a lot. That was our wrinkle. Each week we talk about what's the Dan Mullen wrinkle. This week it was going under center. And with that, Alan, I'm going to ask you, how were we successful in this game on offense? A lot of gaudy numbers we put up. 367 yards rushing. That's huge. 528 total yards. That's a lot. Now, this South Carolina defense was susceptible. I think that's the big difference, how I felt in the middle of this game versus the Missouri game. I was like, I didn't think we were going to stop them. I thought we could score against Missouri, um, but not in our prefer- preferenced ways. Now, against South Carolina, we could score and in our preferences. And so I'll give kudos to the coaching staff, like you said, for not panicking, for sticking to the run, even though we were down. And we're going to need some stops on defense. But we were running the ball super, super effectively. And a part of this is how they utilize Franks. They utilize him the most as a runner. And I think figuring out what he does well. He's done this before. He scored around the goal line. We use it in some tricky situations. But him basically running QB power. Not asking him to do a lot of zone read stuff where he takes it and has to beat the defensive end around the corner and get upfield. Now, he can do that if they really bite on the fake. And once he gets up in the field, we've seen him. He's pretty athletic. He has a pretty decent top-end speed. But he's also a big dude. He's large. If you've ever been up next to him, he's a big guy. Now, he's not as thick as you would maybe want somebody to be. But especially when he's motivated, as he was, he can run that QB power. He can If he leans forward and picks the right hole, which he doesn't always do, that's going to be positive yardage. And so we used him more like a Dan Mullen running quarterback. And then we would in other kinds of games. I think at the beginning of the year, they're a little worried if he gets hurt, what are we going to do? That puts us in a precarious situation. I think right now they're like, man, just run him. If we need to run him, run him. So I think that's a coaching philosophy change and also taking advantage of what Felipe does well in the running game itself. Also the offensive line, I think again, against the inferior opponent was pulling well, was blocking well, and we're getting some good downfield blocks from the receivers, which I think has been an unrated aspect to this offense. So good job, I think, all around in the running game, because that's really what you're going to put your hang your hat on. I had a few throws, a few things for Tony. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But overall, that they committed to the run game. Okay, and let me point this out, too. I thought this is a really interesting nugget here. There's a point in the game, I think, late in the fourth quarter, we kept running the ball to the right over and over and over again, to the right side of our offensive line. And they asked Mullen after the game, you know, did you see something there that you thought you could exploit? He's like, well, no, we didn't want them to substitute. And that was our side of the field next to our sideline. And we kept running that way and we weren't changing. So they couldn't change. They couldn't send somebody all all the way across the field. So we were taking advantage of their, I guess, weaknesses. And also there can, you know, the fact that they're not as deep as some teams are. So little things like that, that can make the difference in running the ball effectively or not. 
And we said coming into this game that this was a very, very bad South Carolina defense, on top of which they were injured, on top of which, Allen, unfortunately, your namesake did not oh, play man. in the game. Bryce which was Allen helpful, Williams, but sad. Their best offensive line player did not make the trip due to an injury. That greatly affected South Carolina. And we said in episode one of this season, we said going back to when McElwain got fired last year, that what does Dan Mullen do? What do you expect Dan Mullen to do? You expect him to beat the teams that have inferior talent on the roster. That's what happened in this game. The QB powers with Franks worked because we were able to finally get push off the line because we were playing against an undermanned, tired South Carolina team. Going under center was very smart. The reason why being under center is better than running out of, let's say, the shotgun is the timing is much different. So your offensive linemen have an extra two or three steps, if you will, to create a hole, create a gap. Your running back has an extra three or four yards to see which lane he wants to go through. And that gives him maybe 20 to 30% more momentum when he comes into that hole. Uh, Scarlett is especially the beneficiary of those single back sets. He looks great running out of that set. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you know that I love pro-style running, which is what that was, mixed with air raid passing. That's my favorite kind of offensive combination. I love going under center. I also think it helped Franks. Franks had two or three of his best throws in the second half coming out from under center. Very, very easy throws. Very safe throws. There's a reason why Bama did it forever. It's very easy for the quarterback to fake that on play action or to take his little drop and just hit whatever slant, hitch, dig is there. Kind of clarifies what's going on within the field. That's a good wrinkle by Dan Mullen. We really had only seen that a tiny bit. A little bit against... Missouri, it didn't really work because Missouri was roughing this up along the line. But they went back to it. They went back to it, and that's why. It's like we said, you have to recognize sometimes it's not the play, it's the personnel. And like we've said all along, Mullen's done a nice job dealing with the broken roster, and we had the personnel advantage in this game. We knew we had it in the front lines there, on the front seven, and we took advantage of that. And that ultimately won us the game, uh, which I think was, was critical for us to understand where our advantage was and continue to stick with it. Last week, Allen, we knew our advantage in the passing game, even though we weren't good at it, and we abandoned it because Franks was so bad, and that ultimately cost us. This week, we stuck with it. Of course, Mullen's much more comfortable running than passing. That helps. But either way, good lesson to stick with the game plan, even though things had not gone correctly, when that's where your best advantage is. All right, let's talk a little bit about play calling. This was funny. This happened live. So I was noticing that on a lot of these formations, whether it was, um, you know, under center or even like in some of our more obvious running situations, we were having Kadarius Tony on the end and he's not the biggest guy. He's not the, maybe the most physical guy. And we're having him block on some of these things. And I was like, that's weird that they keep keeping him in the game. I'm basically like, you know, thinking out loud and immediately go, well, they're going to give it to him on a jet sweep. And immediately the next snap was a jet sweep to Tony, which was pretty effective. You know, basically like, you show the same look over and over again, bam, 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 and then you take advantage of them overflowing to that side. That's why Tony's in the game blocking, which is not his you know forte, not something he's great at. So I know I wanted to pick that out and give you a little credit for that. Anything else you saw like that? Well, they tried the Franks throwback, uh, a la risky business flag football. My, yeah, my team. And so and, say uh, a little bit more with that, like the Franks throwback. What, what was the alignment there? And so in that particular play, if you noticed, it's Tony that goes into quarterback, and they put they put Franks maybe eight nine yards off the line of scrimmage to his left, and in front of him is a receiver. Sometimes it could be two, 
In this case, I think it was it was Kyle Pitts who I think was in front of him. Yeah, there's two receivers out there, and, but uh, yeah. and one will run a route and one will block essentially. And so the first time we run it, no one pays any attention to Franks. It would have been better to run it on the first play. They don't care. The second time, they're more aware of what's going on. Even then, we have the play on where Pitts is supposed to block his defender, and if he does. If he does, we're three on two on that side. So as you mentioned now, and even if he gets the block there, Franks could actually run if he doesn't like any of the passes. Yeah, nobody is over on that side. No field. one's there. The corner runs off with your receiver running a route. You got a backside route. But this is something I've argued for in football for a long time. A lot of the flag football principles carry over to to tackle football because they're the same. It's just the coaches are less creative for a wide variety of reasons, which we could cover in a different podcast one day. But I like that Mullen throws some stuff out there. He clearly understands the more creative side of football. I think plays like that could work. Uh, we need to execute them, which obviously yeah. we didn't. We but, have a freshman tight end who's more of a receiving threat out there blocking, and he blows it. And he blows it. But I like it because the Tony play did work. That's kind of what we're highlighting this. He tried two of them. The Tony play worked. and There must have been five or six times where Tony's out there. And you're basically giving up maybe two to three yards on average per play to have Tony as your wing blocker on the right side. But what you gained was a 35-yard run play. So if you look at the net average, it bumps up because you're waiting for that one And you need those big plays. It. And you need them because you know you cannot generate them throwing the ball. Again, just shows a really good understanding of Dan Mullen on the resource management side. Even when it doesn't always work, we know we have to do it. It gives the defense something to prepare for. And he continues to be really good at showing new stuff every single week. There's nothing on film with Tony on the wing out there like it was this past week. And there's nothing with Franks back there like he was. It's always something different. And so a lot of credit to Dan during the week for them drawing up one or two plays for the team to run in practice continues to be solid. Okay. Most of the offensive news, Allen, was really good. But where did we struggle? Well, it's hard to say we struggled at it because we didn't even try it. And that's throwing the ball downfield. Smartly, mostly because we were having sucks such success running the ball that was where we're going to be successful that's where they were going to be weak now I think they're missing like every safety on their roster we could have attacked downfield probably but that's that's riskier at the beginning of the game we weren't linking together some of these drives like we did in the in the second half we were punting more um and so in the second half we were much more efficient at converting those third downs if you look at Felipe Frank's numbers let's go ahead and talk about him a tidy 15 for 21 for 161 yards. 160 yards is not great. Now, if you run the ball really successfully and if you're up, you'd be like, yeah, that's fine. I don't care how many times throws the ball if we ran for that many. But we were behind. So that's kind of interesting that we didn't that he didn't even have more passing yards. Now, he did run 16 times, well, officially for 36 yards. If you take out the sacks, that number is a lot higher. Two touchdowns, running the ball. I guess we can combine this. Where do we struggle? Throwing the ball, of course. Franks, what about his performance as a passer, not as a runner? We've talked about that a lot. It was a vintage Franks performance. He does throw. I'll give it, I'll give it to him. He throws the, the east-west routes really well. I mean, the screen With some routes, steam on them that you need. He does because he throws it with a lot of heat, and that allows that Tony touchdown to happen. If you've got Trask in there throwing that route, that touchdown may or may not happen because the ball is just not getting there as quickly. Not that Trask can't throw it hard, but Franks really puts that ball there, and it's almost like an extended handoff. So I'll give him credit where credit's due. He makes those throws well. I think the offensive staff recognizes that. But like you mentioned, Alan, almost all those yards, probably 125 of those yards, were balls that were thrown at the line of scrimmage or within two or three yards of it. So he's not playing quarterback at all. He's not taking advantage of everything everyone wanted him to take advantage of. But he is who he is at this point in time. I think if you had any notions, 
If you are disagreeing with me all year long, that he can get better, he can improve, he'll be the guy. Hopefully by now you recognize this really is who he is. And Dan Mullen recognizes right it, and I think I think he knows it. And that's going to lead to some interesting discussions for next season for us on this podcast. But I think everyone's kind of aware that he might just be this guy forever, and maybe what's best for him is something different. I don't know. We'll leave that for another day. But don't get me wrong. I'm happy that he was able to show the grit to win this week. I don't want to take that away from him. That's a tough week for any kid. Like we said, people are piling on him. We're piling on him. I'm piling on him. He comes in the game, guts out a win, hangs in there when the fans don't want him in the beginning, finds a way to get the job done, even if it's unconventional and different. He did it. And you got you have to give credit there. You have to be appreciative of that fact. Like we said, it's not his fault per se that he's reaching maybe a limit for now. And he's managing what he has. And you have to give you have to give some credit there where credit is due. Uh, at some point in time, he's in there. He's doing the job that he can do. And Mullen's managing it well. And that stat line, 15 for 21, is, is, a, is a great Frank's game. And that's that's what you expect from him. That's what you hope from him. That's what Dan wants from him. And I'm sure Dan said afterwards, that's a great game. That's, you did exactly what we asked you to do. And he did that. And that's just where we are in the quarterback spot right now. And again, every week you see some of these moments like uh... – I think one time he rolled out and hit, I want to say, Seontay Lewis on the sideline in a pretty tight window because the ball can get there really quick. He made, you know, it wasn't a difficult read, but finally we threw it to Jefferson on a little in cut. The ball gets there real quick. It's a beautiful looking throw and catch. We get probably 15, 18 yards on it. Man, if those things, if you can direct those into your offense, Franks can hit some big plays like that where other guys couldn't fit it into that window. Now the Jefferson play wasn't a window. It was just a better looking play than like lobbing the ball there because you don't give the defense a chance to recover. But as you said, in this type of game for what we asked him to do, he did fairly well. But it's more the the subtext is more about what are we not asking him to do. So if you're just evaluating him, 15, 21, 160 yards, no picks, you know, two TDs running the ball, it's like yeah, it's a pretty good game. But this is a pretty good game against South Carolina and not. Overall, And as you mentioned, Alan, as a takeaway point here, if you have a better quarterback on the roster, you have a team that has guys playing safety who haven't even played at all in the SEC. And they're not they're not talented enough to be good. And you would attack them. Every other team would test them. Certainly. You would would test them at least once, especially with our receiving core, which is which is criminally having a, a, a tremendous year of underperformance. And it's not their fault. But you put these guys on a team that passes the ball, and they would be lighting up scoreboards. Also, though, Alan, the safety play did factor into us running the ball. South Carolina was extremely hesitant to play a cover one man defense. They almost never did it. They constantly kept two back there. They really just kind of hoped they could stop us running enough times to have Franks screw up. You're right. That was a factor. Franks didn't screw up when he needed to because they were counting on us us or them everyone look at it, they were counting on us to sort of drive the ball and then not score touchdowns. Uh, That's kind of what their goal was because they really didn't want to cover even single high. Now, I think that's a mistake by them personally, Alan. If I'm them, I'm I'm playing man cover one until I prove Franks can do something different than me. Didn't do it. That's that's a Will Muschamp move there. But uh, either way. The more conservative move. The more conservative Will Muschamp move. Either way, good job by the offense against the defense that was ripe for the taking, even if it wasn't pretty like we mentioned, even if it can't be conventional. Got the job done. Tiny margin for error. We escaped. We, we escaped. So on defense, the defense, which has been maybe much maligned here in the past few weeks, kind of comes out and looks much maligned. Our game plan was what we expected. We ran our base 
you know, cover two nickel out of the three, four formation. Didn't play a lot of a linebacker there as our fourth down lineman played mainly four down lineman. So it really is sort of like a, it's really like a, like a classic four, three nickel at this point in time, which we talked about Alan before the season that we probably would slide back into this. If we couldn't get production out of the three, four, it's exactly what we've done. I give Grant them credit for that. South Carolina more or less shredded us for a large portion of this game. Uh, how was the defense successful when we weren't being shredded? If you yeah, were. again, busted assignments early on, whether that's Voshan jo- Joseph or Steiner, you know, we'd have to really ask because you don't always know, like, what was the original assignment? What were you supposed to do? I bet there's a lot of blame all around. Um, and again, the running game, they were catching us on third and long and third and medium running the ball when it's third and nine and you run the ball, you're basically saying, I just want to get a few more yards to get a closer field goal, AKA will must champ. And they're getting first downs. They're getting 12 yards. And that was horrific. Now, if you run on, on third and 12 or third and nine, and you, you're probably going to get five because the team is like not expecting you to do it. And so you get a couple extra yards. We started, you know, clamping down. That's probably because, you know, it worked a couple times and Muschamp kept going back to it and we stopped it. So here's a very interesting statistic, James. Let me get let me ask you about this. So this is both where we were successful and where we struggled. They began the game going six of seven on third down. Now that has been the storyline against Georgia, against Missouri. We could not get off the field. In the second half, they closed by going only one of six on third down, no scoring in the fourth quarter. Why? What what changed? Are we doing anything significantly different? Well, you just mentioned South Carolina running the ball in the first half on third and long twice and converting it. Those were actually really gutsy and good play calls because they caught us off guard. They were being unpredictable. In the second half, the must championess settled in and they became extremely predictable. They were very down predictable. We alluded to this at the top of the show. And that's something we saw as Florida fans all the time. All of a sudden, the tendencies were very obvious. On first down, if they ran it, they were going to run it again on second down. They were going to throw on third down. And now our defensive line, which is largely getting abused by the, 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 the two tight end or one tight end set South Carolina employed, knew it was coming and was able to get downhill much faster. Whereas in the first half, we were really off balance. We had no idea when they were going to run or pass and hence why we were kind of stuck in the neutral zone, if you will, not making pressure either way. So I would say tip of the cap to a must for becoming predictable, even if it looked more or less like in the second half, the balance was kind of there. If you allow a defense to know what you're doing and when you're going to do it, almost any defense becomes much, much better. Much, much better. Especially our defense, which has proven to be good if we know what's happening. In the past three weeks, what's affected us, Alan, is something we said at the beginning of the season. What happens when we play teams that actually have an offense? We struggle. We have to know what you're doing. Against LSU, they're so one-dimensional, you can more or less know what they're doing because they can't complete a lot of these passes. But Jake Bentley, Fromm, obviously Drew Locke, Ken... And as soon as we are off balance, we are in trouble. So I think in this game in the second half, we didn't make any schematic changes. You know, whether whether Voshan Joseph, who blew, who definitely blew three coverages in the first half, almost solely on his own, especially on film, you can tell it's almost exclusively his fault. Uh, whether our safeties are out of position, unable to make tackles. We didn't make a whole lot of personnel changes. We didn't change our scheme at all. To me, it's almost exclusively due to the fact that we had a much better idea of what they were doing because Muschamp became Muschamp. And that led to that one for six. Uh, especially towards the end of the game in critical moments. So if you want to look at the defense in this game in a nutshell, Alan, we were successful because as the game leverage increased, Muschamp went tight. 
We had a better idea of what he was doing. We took advantage of those high leverage situations. I think that was critical. But we continue, Allen, to struggle mightily with what I'm going to call the Georgia plan, which is teams that employ two tight ends against us. Yeah, so why don't you talk about this? Why is that? We cannot and do not have a counter to that. Why does that affect us so much? I can can chip in with this. I think you should chip in with your lead answer, yeah. Okay, so as you said, so a team employing two tight ends. One, that allows them to protect better. Two, it's, it's a little sneakier about who's running a route. A lot of these busted coverages, especially against Missouri, were tight ends running free where a linebacker or maybe a safety doesn't pick up on their responsibility or two people go to one receiver and leave one wide, wide open. And this has really been tough for Polite, for Jefferson, but I'd say especially for Polite. He's getting double teamed um, by the tight end and a tackle, and he's not an experienced enough guy. I mean, most people getting double teamed are not going to have much success he's not an overly large guy either where he's just going to bull through that and again i'll talk about our defensive tackles we've been playing a pair mostly in Schuler and campbell who are fine who can get the job done they'll make some plays they'll run down their they're decent wave rotation guys sec players but they're not difference makers the guys we thought would be difference makers slayton and conliffe are barely playing they're not playing mostly we're also playing dunlap in there that is a real problem. So if you're getting double teamed on the edge and your interior is getting no push up the middle, the quarterback never feels any pressure. Now in the second half, when South Carolina was either being, we knew what they were doing or they were in a different formation. We started to get a little bit of pressure on some key downs. You saw polite, you saw Jefferson get in there just, just a little bit. And that was a breath of fresh air because we had to get nowhere close to the quarterback and they started to in the second half. And again, when we blitz and we're wrong, we're toast. We do not have the coverage on the back end. We do not have the linebackers either have the experience playing zone coverage behind the play. And we don't get home on that blitz and we're done. And so that was still happening in the first half. They beat us a couple times um, doing that again. So... I think with the grand defense where we're at now, it's frustrating that they're still blowing assignments in the, this late in the season, but when we're good, we're good. And when we're bad, we can be very bad. And that's still where we're at right now as a roster, as a coaching staff. And the good news is Idaho can't take advantage of that. And neither can Florida state. So if you look at our finishing games here, if you look at the road to 10 wins, neither of those teams can employ a strategy that has absolutely owned us. That is the meta strategy against our defense. They can't do it. So there's a little bit of comfort there if you're looking to say, can this team get to 10 wins to have what you and I both would have called an extraordinary season with the bowl to get game, the 10 mean. wins? Yeah, with the bowl game. Uh, you know, then that's what you're that's what you're looking at is you're looking at a layup almost uh, strategy wise to get there, and then you have your 10th game, which could be a wild card, it could be a team that could in fact do that to you, and that changes the schematic. But right now, it's a known. I think it's a known thing that we have no answer to that. Did not have an answer for it in the second half against South Carolina, but we didn't blow some coverages which, like you mentioned, led to a couple of coverage pressures. They were not pressures right away, but they led to some because we just didn't outright blow a coverage. So credit to Granta for cleaning up the disaster that was the first quarter with Voshan, getting him in the right spot. And again, we're going to highlight this, Alan. Trey Dean, Chauncey Gardner, and Henderson are covering really well. So if you're Exceptionally asking, well at times. If you're asking why then when teams go max pressure, we're struggling, our safeties are non-existent. They're literally not there. Name how often a safety makes a play on this football team. They do not. 
And when teams are running max protect, your safeties are the ones that really assist because they can come downhill on a dig route when they see a guy gets beat. They can drop deep on a post route when a guy gets deep. They're just never there. They're just two guys standing out there. It's like we're playing with 10 men on defense. Basically, yes. They're two guys standing out there doing nothing. And it's a hard position to play at this level, but that's, that's a recurring reason why we struggle against teams that max protect is yes, we have guys playing coverages and we have safeties who are more or less cone. Well, it's a little more complicated too when we blitz because then their responsibilities change and they're not comfortable with that. Also, Brad Stewart didn't play in this game for better or worse. He does some things well, some things not so well. Um, Sean Davis, you like to comment on him making moves. You dislike some safeties, you really like him. It's probably a bright spot. We'll save that for later. Let's talk about special teams. Uh, our boy McPherson had his first miss. It was close. Uh, shout out to Kyle Mooney, who, for better or worse, I guess, was like, I feel like we're going to miss this. This is He hasn't missed one yet. And then he did. So, Kyle, I don't know if you're happy or sad about that, but you called it. Um, yeah, are you? does that erode your confidence in McPherson at all? Or are you still like on that train? No, he, he's an NFL kicker. I mean, he missed that kick barely. This yeah, from where is, I was sitting, I was like, was it a miss? Yeah, but not guy, as close as the other he one. He doesn't have any variance at all, seemingly. I mean, he, if he misses, it's either in, which was the first one he kicked, or it's <laughs> almost in to where the ref has to consider it. He's, he's an incredible. I mean, he's we've seen some good kickers at Florida, but right now, like his cone of missing is tiny. Yeah, I mean, especially he, he next looks, year when he the coaching staff has more confidence in him. He has more confidence. He's going to be a real, real weapon. Yeah, he looks as good as anyone can look at that spot. Okay, finally, Alan, we saw your boy. And really, most Florida fans, boys, Kadarius Tony, The guy who I wanted to get the call yeah. on punt team. It was an exciting moment. We're thinking, hey, you know, Swain's done a nice job, but Tony's clearly the kind of punt returner guy. Look at him. He's a jitterbug back there. He gets his moment. Fair catch number one. Number two, right between his wickets for a South Carolina, crucial South Carolina turnover at that stage of the game. And then he promptly was yanked from punt team. We will probably not see him again for the rest of the year on punt team after that. <laughs> yeah, that was tough. So if you're like kind of designing a punt returner, way more than a kickoff returner, they put him back there. I don't think he's the right guy for a kickoff return, but he's almost the ideal punt returner that you cannot touch him. He basically, you could be one foot away from him and you're going to miss him if you're moving forward at all. And then he showed why he hasn't been back there ahead of Swain. Kind of you know, not muffs it, but juggles the first one, drops the second one. That point of the game, I thought we were in it and maybe we weren't going to recover from that. Um, now, props to the defense and the rest of the team for holding on through that moment. But, yes, that was frustrating because I wanted to see him, and it makes you appreciate someone like Swain, who always catches it, is a decent punt returner. He's solid. Um, but that's why Tony's not back there yet. And, again, in his and his learning curve from becoming a quarterback to a wide receiver, maybe a punt returner, I, I think he could still do it in the future. An offseason of catching a million punts and being the lead guy could get him there. I think he can do it. He doesn't have bad hands. But that's that's why he wasn't back there. And I would say he he needs to do it for, yeah. this, for this team's sake. I, when you have that kind of skill set and you look at Tony, if he wants to play in the league, he's going to be a special teams guy primarily, maybe a little scat back somewhere. If you look at how the NFL is going with that, like a guy like Cohen in Chicago, he needs to develop that skill set. So we need him to be that guy because there's huge upside there. And all he really has to do is, like you said, just practice catching punts. He's he could be an All-American back there. coordination to do it. And we know from Mullen, he's very raw at learning all these positions. So for him, I think a big offseason is coming, route running, and also working on being able to catch punts because he needs to be the guy. That's back there. Okay, let's go to coaching corner. Some interesting moments in this game. Let's start with maybe the most 
high profile one. Uh, well, maybe not. Let's start with this one. Fourth and 11. We punted with Franks. We basically made them call a timeout and we, and Franks pooch punted it and it was nice. It landed. We probably should have downed them inside the one. It didn't happen. Do you like that? Would you rather have us just sent our boy Tommy Townsend out there? I think so. I don't see what you're gaining from this. So I the think trickery. That, I think leaving your offense out there to force him to call a timeout in that decision in that situation is a good one. There's more than a minute left. Make them go down from three to two. I like that. But I don't know what you're accomplishing with trickery. And Tommy Townsend has proven to be one of the best in the country at downing that ball inside the ten time and time again. There's no way to return it. It's high. It's soft. I'm not really sure what you think you're gaining by tricking them because well, they, they so wouldn't success. put somebody back there. Sure, but you've been so successful statistically at downing teams inside the ten. I don't know what percentage you think you gain by having a guy in Franks who's never kicked it. He did a good job. Yeah, it actually worked. He kicked it fairly perfectly. Sure. But even then, like that, that's what we're getting at, right? It's a probability cone. Okay, so having never executed this, what are the odds you execute it in this one play that you do it? Well, we didn't. I mean, it, you could say it could have been, should have been, whatever, versus what are the odds of executing when you've done it already 15 times this year? I think in that situation, it's a minor situation, but we basically only gained 13 or 14 yards of field position there. So to me, I don't like going for it, not in that situation with our offense. I think you just put your punt team out there and punt it. I'm not, again, I'm just not totally sure what goes on with surprise punt. I like surprise punts, Alan, a lot more if you're actually on your own side of the field because then they won't send a guy back there. Then you punt maybe... 50, 60 yard punt when no one is there to get it. I like that. That's this one seems a little bit too creative for my taste. Fourth and goal, the much more important one here. Down three, four minutes and change left. 31 28 is the score. We go for it on the one yard line. Like it? Dislike it? Well, if you know me, I love this. I love going for it. Now, late game situation becomes a little different. I love going for it because basically if your defense is has any kind of toughness to them all, you should get the ball back in field goal range anyway. I thought we needed to go ahead right there. We were moving the ball, running it. Now we were almost in the previous play. Maybe we were even in. Um, and apparently this is one of those times where Felipe Mullins like, just go, if you go right, you're going to walk in and he keeps <laughs> diving for it, you know, straight up the middle. He got it you know, fairly cleanly. I like going for it there. I think you take the lead, you take the momentum, you're up three at that point, which is a good number, um, especially against South Carolina. And yeah, I I don't know. I think all the factors for me, both analytically, emotionally, like momentum wise said, go for it there. But I'm pretty aggressive in that situation. You would you have kicked it? You, you and I are totally aligned on this because okay. of the math. So if you've got four minutes left in this game and you don't get it, uh, the expected value, and plenty of people have calculated this, is that you will still get more than three points. So here's how you make this decision. Four minutes left, you're on the one-yard line. What's the expected value of the situation? Okay, if I go for it, I could get seven points or I could get stopped, right? Then they get the ball. Then what are the odds if I stop them, calculate that, now, what are the odds when I get the ball back of me scoring? Okay. Now, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's around four. So when you're on the one-yard line and it's fourth down and goal and you go for it, on average, you're going to get four points. So if you're tracking with that, four is better than three, <laughs> and therefore it's worth going for it. Now, this does change tactically. If there are 15 seconds left in this game, 
and you feel like you're the superior team, you might kick a field goal here. Because you might say, you know what, I feel like I've got a good chance of winning this game in overtime. I don't really want to win or lose on one one-yard play, which can be fluky. But with this much time left, with our timeout situation left, I liked the call there. South Carolina would have had to get in two first downs in order to run the clock out. There's an excellent chance that we're able to get the ball in good field position. I love the call in that situation because the math justifies it being a good decision. If the math was different there, I'd have a different opinion. Maybe it's a feel scenario. But in that situation, right move. Totally right move. Yeah, and I, I would have thought basically South Carolina is not going to do anything. Again, knowing your opponent, if they're on the one-yard line, some aggressive people might, you know, let me run a play action and try to bomb it over your head and steal a score or at least get you to like midfield. Muschamp would have done it. He would have done like three QB sneaks off the one-yard line. You would have gotten the ball back probably your own 40. with And then with a guy like McPherson, you're already in field goal range. Okay, a little game theory leveling there. Okay, we basically showed something on their last offensive possession right before um, the C.J. Henderson interception where we called timeout, and it looked like we switched from what we were going to do, at least from what we could see, like a blitz to dropping. Uh, did you like what we did there after that timeout? Uh, that's a fantastic version of leveling. And in fact, the Greg McElroy, who's my continued least favorite SEC broadcaster, makes a nice point on this one, and he's dead wrong, which is kind of entertaining. <laughs> but if you really want to watch like game theory in action, you can just listen to McElroy dissect this. But we come out showing what's going to be blitz on 3rd and 11. ESPN pulls up a ridiculously well-timed stat, so hats off to their stat guy, that Jake Bentley is the best in the SEC when he's blitzed. Number one, the best quarterback, which of course we should know this. Uh, either way, we don't like the look. So you can question Grant them as to why we've been blitzing that situation, but we don't like the look, so we call timeout. We come out of timeout now with three guys on the line, looking like, it even looks like we're not going to blitz. We're kind of even showing them. It plights in the middle, but he drops. Yeah, I mean, it's, we sneak a little bit, but not, not necessarily loading the line of scrimmage. So we're showing more conservative look. However, the interesting part here is McElroy spends the entire time out talking about how Grantham loves to blitz in these situations. If you're South Carolina, you know you've got to take just half the yardage here. You can't risk getting sacked. And, and McElroy confidently says, I would call a screen. Then you hear the play-by-play announcer, oh, Florida only rushing three. Like excited and confused and kind of a fun moment. And Bentley's very confused, by the way. He has, he has way more time than he thinks he does. He actually leaves the pocket on his own because he's just seeing ghosts and throws a horrible aimed pass on he's a probably thinking route. The blitz is coming where he doesn't feel it. Because he feels like he's being blitzed. That is, to me, the best example of game theory we've seen all year long. And fantastic job by the staff to come out of that and drop eight. Absolutely brilliant. We completely caught South Carolina by surprise. This was a game that was very much in jeopardy at this point in time. Bentley's been very good in these situations, and we totally fooled them. So if you're a fan of game theory like I am, that timeout play change ended the game for us. It ended the game for us. We gave them something they did not expect, and it worked extremely well, and we finished it out. So wonderful moment there. Lastly, Alan, we could spend almost an entire podcast on the coaching decisions that Muschamp had made during this game. You mentioned the timeouts at the end of the first half uh, we were using because he's just running the ball every time when he could have been, you know, tried to score more with all the momentum. Uh, you can look at just almost everything that they did, including the very last drive they had, where we're clearly expecting pass every time and, and they're obliging us by passing every time. I mean, there's tons of time left in the game. They have two timeouts, there's four minutes left, and you, you would have thought there were 20 seconds left. 
So just a lot of things that that Muschamp does are frustrating. Thankfully for I think both you and I, Alan, we don't have to have an entire podcast on what happened, and we wound up getting a W, largely because those coaching decisions assisted us here. In conjunction with Dan Mullins, I think, as we mentioned in the pod here, for the most part, solid coaching decisions in high leverage situations. Yeah, we've piled on Muschamp a lot on this podcast already. Um, I got to say, I don't hate seeing him there every year. I hope he's gainfully employed by South Carolina. And you know what? He's honestly not a bad fit there. Now, South Carolina, you're, you, you can do better. You did do better. But will you do better than him? I don't know. That's a decision that they're going to have to make coming soon, I think, in the next couple of years is, is this good enough for them? And I think it's not, although it might be the best that they can reasonably do outside a lottery ticket and a younger coach, but we'll see. Okay, James, a few bright spots. Give me one or two. I'll, I'll drop a couple. I'm going to give Sean Davis out here this week. He's been recurring, but every time on film, it's hard to find the guy doing anything wrong. I continue to wonder why he does not get more playing time. Steiner is obviously preferred over him. He subs in for Steiner when he comes in. I just don't understand what Sean Davis has to do to get more PT. Maybe it goes down to the practice first game time. But when the lights are on, this guy plays very, very well. I'd like to see more of him. I can tell you probably why, at least my theory. I'm ready. I, You know, just as in Mullen prefers a larger center. Now, TJ McCoy, I don't know if he's hurt, but he's you don't even see him. He's not even on the depth chart. Small guy for that position. That they prefer a larger safety who can – make plays in the interior who they can bring on a blitz um, who can maybe play linebacker in a pinch. Sean Davis is a smaller guy, but at the end of the day, like you said, if you're not effective, it doesn't matter how big you are or small you are, if you are effective. Um, But yes, every time he's out there, I'm pleased. I would rather see him over anybody we have. Agreed. Yeah. If you're making plays, you're making plays. My favorite moment in the game was CJ Henderson running down Debo Samuel. Impressive. That was amazing. Debo Samuel is maybe the best kick returner in the SEC. He's also known as a very fast guy, a guy who's got an NFL future. And Henderson ran him down. The that second was, time he's done that, we're saved just yeah. by running some. I mean, down. Henderson is putting some stuff on film for the NFL. I mean, that is no joke. If you didn't appreciate that moment, appreciate it. It was a slant route with three missed tackles, and then Henderson just hossed him down. You can see as Debo got tackled, there was almost this look of disbelief. Because when Debo gets out like that, no one catches him. And it was, what? how did I just get run down? I love that moment. So Henderson, of course, continues to play well all year long, gets the pick at the end as well. He's a bright spot. Uh, Alan, I'll let you name a few here. Yeah, I want to point out a guy that you mention every week when we're watching the game because he just, well, he pops when he makes a play. But then also you don't mention his name for a long time because people don't throw at him. That's Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. Love him in this nickel spot. Enjoy him while he's here. I'm assuming he's in the league next year. Excellent game every week from him. He's a leader on this team. I would hate to think where we would be without him. Um, Loved him there. Of course, okay, Tony. We got to talk about him. He makes one play every game where you're like, wow. I can't believe that happened. Where Where he changes sides of the field. Most people, I'm like, no, stop. Don't do that with him. Whatever he wants to do is usually good. He almost never gets tackled for a loss. You know, minus the punt, obviously. And Mullen said after the game, they've got to get him the ball more. He's touching it five to six. It should be like nine to ten. And then if he's also your punt return next year, that's going to go up. That'll that could figure into your kind of game plan with him. But I don't know if it'll happen versus Idaho, because whatever. But expect to see him get the ball a lot versus Florida State. 
Tony's a guy we have to get the ball to more. And we've been doing that. And we've been saying that. And I'm going to keep saying that. He is the most Even electric more. playmaker we have. And the way that this team is, since you can't get it downfield to guys like Tyree Cleveland, who's all but disappeared this season. And I'm going to give Cleveland, let me give Cleveland a little bit of credit here. He plays super hard on special teams every single game. This is a guy under McWayne who you thought was going to be our best receiver. Vertical threat. We're utilizing him deep occasionally when we could ever throw the ball deep. And this year, he's all but a ghost. Van Jefferson. One catch a game, maybe. Grimes, every time he touches the ball, excellent. Hammond has been extremely competent as a slot receiver, right? On, on, and on. And these guys are more or less kind of ghosts. So you have to imagine the buy-in from a guy like Cleveland. I'm sure he's frustrated what that looks like for him. But that is indicative of how important Tony is on this team because you don't have to send Tony down the field. You just give him the ball in the backfield. You throw him a swing pass. You give him a tunnel screen. You do things we can do. And I think you got to get 10 touches a game. I mean, he's that kind of guy where you got to give him 10 to 11 touches a game because he has a chance of doing something special every single time. And you time. could do that. with. And the nice thing about him is you can game plan that. You can have him take some snaps at the Wildcat. You can hand him the ball. You can throw him screens. So – it shouldn't be that hard to get him that many touches. Now, early in the season, we kept saying we weren't running that many plays. We're going to run a lot of plays the next couple of weeks. So hopefully we'll see some excellent Tony plays. Yeah, and some other bright spots wrapping up this segment. Franks is running is as, as good as you're going to see Franks run. Tough, hard running. Good running from him when he was called upon. The running backs were fantastic. Both P. Run and Scarlett were really, really excellent in this game. And the O-line did a phenomenal job, especially when we were under center blocking. That changed the game. So hats off and credit to them. Final thoughts section, Alan, and I'm going to use this section this week to kind of have a season reflection. So a lot of you out there are thinking, well, Florida right now is, is what, seven and three? Not bad, right? You're thinking, okay, this is a surprise. Is this great? Is this amazing? Are we way ahead of schedule? Well, I want to revisit our season projections. So at this point in time, you, Alan, had us at eight and two, and I had us at seven and three. And as we're reflecting on this, it's interesting to remember that this was we we kept we've been saying it all year. People ask us, "Are you surprised? Are you shocked?" No, we're not. We looked at the schedule and thought we're going to be favored or at least close to favored in a lot of these games. What has maybe been surprising for both of us is how we've gotten here. Yeah, the route, the journey to here has been different. The teams that we've played have looked different than maybe we thought they were outside of probably Missouri. LSU was a much better version of LSU than we thought we'd get. Mississippi State, when we played them especially, was a worse version of Mississippi Kentucky State. Kentucky is not the normal get. Kentucky. Kentucky was a better version, right? So, so it was weird the way that it went, but I think all in all, it, it flowed more or less how I think we thought it kind of would. We've mainly beaten the teams we should have beaten and mainly lost the ones we should have lost, minus one or two here or there with some close victories uh, at hand. But either way, it sets up very interestingly for the close of the season. So, Alan, I want to ask you, you're at 8-2 and two right now. You finished the year with your projections uh, having us at 9-3, and three, right? 9-3, and three. okay. Do you still feel like that's the direction we're going in? Do you want to mend that pick now? No, not at all. I mean, I think I predict us to lose to FSU. That's how I got us to 8-2 and two at this point. Um. And finishing up at nine and three, of course, we'll we'll both predict an Idaho win. We'll do that in a minute here. Uh, but yeah, so again, that, and that was kind of on the top end. It's funny because in the middle, halfway through the season here, we were at six and one. I was like, okay, wow, this could be a 10, 11 win season because the schedule was breaking right for us. Now, you know, I don't think you know anyone expected us to really be favored against Georgia or win that game. We could have. And we got blasted by Missouri. And now we're kind of peeking back up again because we won this game. That Going back to the top, that's why that was an important win. 
to preserve the overall narrative of this season. And narratives are important in college football. They're not everything, but they're important. They Because it applies to recruiting or applies to bowl games. It applies to donor momentum. So I think a 9-3 and three finish is you know where we're going to be headed. You know, we'll talk about Florida State when we get there. We've got another week to think about that, ruminate that. But again, that's that's where I hope we finish, and that's what I predicted. I feels like you're probably feeling the same thing now. I don't know. We'll see when we get to Florida State, but eight and four is roughly about where we're at. Yeah, I mean, that's what we thought. And Florida State, I thought would be better because their talent level. And neither you nor I believed in Taggart at all. That we've been clear about that. They're, they're an incredible dumpster fire that at this point in time, hard to imagine that we lose to them given how we can play competently and they simply cannot. And that becomes the extra win. Oh, I can all, imagine it in my nightmares. It's all, certainly a possibility. <laughs> all that is to say that this is actually not unexpected. So for us on this podcast, which is how we're reflecting, we're not saying we're geniuses or we're Nostradamus, but I think that Dan's pleasantly surprised us in other ways. Uh, which I think especially has been the resource management and play calling, showing a very high level for that. But all in all, actually, at this at this point, with a quarter of the season left, if you will, uh, including the bowl game, here we are kind of right where we thought we'd be. Uh, Vegas maybe didn't think so. Vegas had us at seven wins this year. And I think I had eight, you had nine, we both held over. But in the beginning of the season, Alan, I want to frame it with this for the ending comment here. Ten wins, we said, would have been extraordinary, no matter what happened with the schedule. Because you have to understand that Injuries come into play, right? This is a long campaign. So you're not always going to get the teams you think each year that are going to be good and ones will be bad. But no matter what, I will not, and you will not hear me diminish. If we get to 10 wins, even nine wins, I said nine wins would be a great year. I will not change that because Florida State wound up being bad. That's still true. It's a great year. It's different than a nine-win year when you're playing Texas's schedule this year. But regardless we have in front of us an opportunity for a very, very good opening season record-wise. Most importantly, Alan, we have a chance for us stylistically, I think, to do what I hoped we'd do, which is prove to me, prove to us that you can manage the resources that you have in a way that they improve each week. And my final thought on the South Carolina game is we go down 31-14 after losing two games in a row, one of which was at home the previous week. Your quarterback is getting booed. Your fan base is at the margins. And your team doesn't quit. They come back and they win this game. Great point. And I can't say enough about what that means for Dan Mullen's ability to handle these young guys in the midst of a difficult, challenging, confidence, losing month. That's exemplary to be able to do that. Very few coaches can maintain the ship when it's taking on water like that. And that's my final thought for where we are right now is, Hats off to Dan Mullen, and I think that's why guys like Mick Cuba were so amped up for this program-defining win. I view it more as, hey, Dan really knows how to manage the roster. The big elephant room for me is still the recruiting, which we'll talk about at a later time. But excellent thus far. Important win for the team being on board. And like you said, Alan, the team now is going to come into these final two weeks amped up, whereas Florida State comes into these final two weeks completely dejected. And we would have been in that same boat had we lost to South Carolina game. All right, James, let's look at the national games. Let's start with Ohio State 26, Michigan State 6. Big story out of this game was people at halftime were like, Urban looks awful. Is he going to quit? But they won. They won, and I think I said last week that I, I thought Ohio State would win this game, cover the spread, 
because I felt like this Ohio State team was either going to make or break it right there with that week. And for a long time, it looked like break it was the answer. Season was over. Maybe Urban was done. And my litmus test was if they won this game, Urban's sticking around. He'll be fine despite the cloud above him. Of course, that's overly simplistic. But they did it. So I'm going to stick with that narrative until proven otherwise. I still don't think this is a playoff caliber team. Michigan will answer that. We'll know whether or not this team is, which is nice. We're not going to have to worry about a fraudulent Ohio State team getting in. If they beat Michigan, then they'd be worthy of inclusion because Michigan's playing very well right now. So they will get to answer that question. Agreed. TCU 10, West Virginia 47. There's not a, a vintage TCU team, but a very impressive showing nonetheless. Yeah, the spread was 13 or something. I backed the bus up, put a nice bet down on it. Will Greer is just a money-making machine. But more importantly, West Virginia looks very good. They're your sneaky dark horse for a lot of stuff right now, including the playoff. Will Greer is your sneaky dark horse for the Heisman right now. A lot of good stuff coming out of Morgantown, and uh, their schedule just keeps on getting better and better. Mississippi State 0, Alabama 24. Wasn't this line 24 when we picked it, or was it higher? It was 26 and a half. Okay, and then went down. It went down. This is so funny because I would have expected more from Bama or a field goal from Mississippi State, but I don't think this game was even as close as the 24. No, 21 nothing in the first half. Then Tua, you have to begin to worry if you're an Alabama fan now about Tua, though. It's hard for him to survive a game against good competition. His knee is obviously compromised. Yeah. And any kind of hit he takes on that thing, he goes down. Was so, Hurts available? Could they have played him in this game? Hurts is still hurt. So I think the answer is no. Uh, he may be in an emergency situation. But you know, Hurts will be fine, I think, come the playoff. I think Alabama's good enough to probably survive that. But this is a drastically different team when Hurts is in there because you know he can't really throw. So keep an eye on Tua's health. Uh, also, I think, Alan, it's safe to say that Tua has come back down to earth, if you will. Still a great quarterback, but the I video it, game numbers we've seen. Yeah, I think he's hurt a little bit too. He is like hurt. And the video said. game numbers we've seen, he's not as good. And we, I said this last year, right? I mean, I said last week that I thought Tiamu of Ole Miss is better than Tua, which I know maybe ruffles some feathers. But he's not as good, in my opinion, as a Will Greer. He's not as good, in, in my opinion, raw talent-wise as a Tiamu. I think he's very good. I don't even know what his NFL future will look like yet. You've got to see more on him against better competition. No matter what, though, he's a very good quarterback, and that team is incredibly hard to stop when he's healthy because he can run. It's hurting them that he can't run at all right now. That's affecting their game plan. He ran a lot more early on in the season. It will be interesting to see what happens with this Alabama team. Clearly, they are absolutely excellent. I wouldn't and, play him at all next week. And that's what I was about to say next, is the Tua management might be the interesting narrative to come out of this one. We will see how they handle him going down the wire. Bedlam, and it was Bedlam. Oklahoma State 47, Oklahoma 48. The mullet and and the Cowboys there, they score. Well, first they missed an extra point, which was brutal. When they have a chance to tie it up or go for two, they go for two. They run a play that... I didn't love, although it would have been open if he makes a good throw. But they've been cutting them up all night. I don't know. Crazy, crazy game. Do you like going for two there? I love going for two there. The score of this game is 48-47, which tells you that neither team can stop anyone. And they've missed a kick. And they missed an extra point, which should have been kicking an extra point to win the game right there. Now, keep in mind, there's more than a minute left, I think, of time. I think so. So Oklahoma gets the ball back here. They probably still score and win. So we can't say it's an outright win here going for two, which technically means, Alan, in this situation, mathematically, you kick your extra point and you tie because you probably can't walk off win. 
That's what I would lean towards in this situation. However, however, I understand the optics here. You haven't stopped them at all. I think you're hoping you give your team a lead and like you get the extra emotional boost to put these guys away. Also, the guy's wide open on the most basic of plays. I don't I don't know what Oklahoma is doing on defense. I mean, that was the simplest two-point conversion play you could ever imagine. Yeah, that's why the I didn't love it. But it just ran an out route. Like, what? Are you kidding me? An out route. And he was wide open. And he misses the easiest of all throws. And that QB had been like burning them all day, and he makes a terrible just throw. A, just he aimed in there. And it was nuts to think on a play that big that that's the play they ran was a simple out route. But it worked. I can't blame the play. He's wide open. That's the easiest throw a quarterback can make. It's simple. It's safe. He just blew it at the moment in time. So I think if you lose, you always want to lose making the right throw. He made the right throw to the right guy who was wide open, and you lost. You can't you can't be too upset about that as a coach. You That means you did everything right. Yeah, big but. for Oklahoma. I'm sure it hurts for Oklahoma State not to beat the bigger brother there, but Oklahoma stays alive for the playoff. I don't know that I would want to put them in there because I think they would get taken advantage of defensively, but there you go. Auburn 10, UGA 27. This game was close early, not close late. Yeah, probably the narrative for Georgia this year. They're not good enough to wax you, but they're too talented for you to stay with them for the most part. Uh, fluky LSU game and side. Swift is averaging like 10 yards a carry. Yeah, he's he's real nice. So they're kind of finding their way. They're not as good. It will be very interesting to watch them play Alabama because I do think they have enough athletes to counter some of what Bama does. Uh, I still think that they match up poorly against Alabama this year, whereas last year they matched up well. They just don't quite have it. But either way, a great, a yet another great season for Kirby Smart. So for all the haters out there, all he does is continue to win and win and win and win and win, whatever it looks like, however it is. Auburn was supposed to be the team this year that was going to be really, really good, and they've just had a season that went the other way. This is the fire gush year. You just got to wait for the, the higher gush year. That's next year. You can't fire him now on the eve of his good season. You got to fire him after his good season. So there you go. FSU 13, Notre Dame 42. Again, this wasn't, I think this could have been much more. One, if Ian Book had played, or two, Notre Dame kept the, you know, their foot on the gas. Yeah, this was my lock of the week, and I didn't actually bet on it. Not that any of you out there really care about my betting trends, but I'm I saying did. that because as soon as Ian was out, I was like, ugh, Florida State's so bad, but I don't know. Notre Dame played some wonky close results without him, and it doesn't matter. Florida State is just so bad. That they don't care and they quit. They're going to quit because it was cold and they were, they've quit in every game that they've and and to hear the guys in. on College Game Day, which you you can watch College Game Day a lot, and they are, are like overly professional about bad teams. They try very hard not to say stuff like what they're saying at you about Florida State, but to hear all of them say this team just quits is insane. I mean, Alan, we've watched a lot of college football in our lifetime. I don't know how often I've openly heard analysts talk about teams just quitting because it has to be so obvious because. That's a hard thing to say about college kids that they're quitting. You don't want to say that, but I guess that's the only conclusion people can take away from why they're getting blown out the way that they are. I and mean, they're so talented. Like you would imagine if they organized themselves, they'd be closer than what they're getting with the coach result. It's a it's it's a glorious dumpster fire there in Florida State, and I hope it burns long and hard for the foreseeable future. Texas picks up a good win against the Red Raiders, 41-34. Yeah, another another good game where I like Texas in it and Texas Tech made a furious comeback with their backup quarterback who apparently can't throw, but oh, by the way, threw for 400 some odd yards. <laughs> Again, quarterbacks around the country that can all throw but ours seems to be the theme. Well, the air raid as well. Yes. And I think that if anything for Texas Tech, for me this season, Alan, Cliff Kingsbury has proven to stick around. They've gotten better this year. They They've been have to very close, very close to the top competition this season. 
after many seasons where they wouldn't be. He clearly seems to be improving. It's weird. They have a lot of funky results. I know they don't love it, but this season, for no, for no other reason than he's right there, seemingly, I think you got to keep him around and well, see what he can do. One, he's young. Two, who are you going to hire that's going to approach his level? Also, there is the narrative that he stays. If you go, if you fire him, if you got a guy who is better than him, odds are he's going to leave you. I think you have to stay the course because your most preferred outcome and the highest level that you can get to is keeping a guy like Kingsbury at his alma mater, which he'd be less likely to leave for a better job. Clemson 27, Boston College 7. They kept this close for a while. Boston College just too limited offensively. They lost their quarterback as well. Shame. Yeah, that was unfortunate. Boston College really comes out on fire. The crowd is just losing their mind. Uh, awesome. I thought another good game plan by Dabo Sweeney there, managing Trevor Lawrence in this game. He kind of felt the way things were going, kept it very conservative. Uh, I thought that was a nice job by Dabo. No need to to put Trevor out there and start having him sling the ball over the field. That was just get a win, knowing your schedule is easy, and survive. So good management there. Alan, piece of news before we get to that run up, I want to mention to you. Bobby Petrino fired from Louisville. Indeed. Now you have been saying, and you said in this very podcast, that you thought that one Jeff Brom at Purdue would be the the inside guy for Louisville. It certainly seems to me like firing Petrino right now is a flare up in the sky. Hey, Brom, we want to come after you. That's why we're doing this. Well, it's it's a lot of money, right? So Petrino, again, with these buyouts are crazy. $14 million buyout. Brom has a $4 million buyout, which is not that big, but it's money. Buy out the rest of his staff, buy out the Petrino staff. It's a price tag. I don't know that they would have fired Petrino, although he certainly deserved to be fired, if they didn't have the extra cash to go ahead and hire Brom. They're at least going to go after him. And I think this is a situation where when your home calls you, you probably say yes. I mean, I don't think Louisville is much of an upgrade over Purdue, although probably a slight one. But I'd be surprised if he didn't take that job. I think he likes Purdue. I think he would want to stay there. But if you have a chance to coach at your alma mater and with a new regime, new new beginnings, new AD, um, I don't know. Their institution there. His family went there. He grew up there. He played there. I'd be surprised if he didn't take the job. That's so interesting to me, Alan. Everything in me says don't take that job. It can't be any more than a lateral move. It has less resources, if you want to argue that, than what Purdue might commit to him there. But most importantly... He's got to be the hottest coaching name or amongst one or two of them right now there. You feel like if he just waited another year, he could pick a really good job potentially. But he is in an odd year this year where what great job is really opening. No, they, all of them changed last year. And that's kind of why you look at this and think this is very interesting for him timing-wise because you could wait too long at Purdue and the shine is off of you. I don't know. Interesting decision. Well, here. this is the thing with, like, let's say, I don't know. Also, if you're going to hire him, like, are you always looking over your shoulder at Louisville? Like, if we had hired Scott Frost, say they didn't fire Mike Riley, Mike Riley's doing marginally better than he, he did the previous year. Are we just always waiting for them to fire him that Frost might leave? The I don't know, your alma mater type situation. Now, some people are more ambitious. Seems like Brom, that's kind of the guy he is who would want to coach his alma mater. You're right. You know, it's not that big of a jump. But you can win at Louisville. Even though that's a brutal, brutal division with Clemson and all those teams that are doing well in there right now. If he was on the other side, he'd probably step right in and dominate. Um, but I don't know, man. I mean, I, it'd be hard if you're on water. Like, you know, obviously Florida is a top job. If I was a football coach, 
you know, in Florida was like, yeah, we, we want you. It'd, it'd be almost impossible to say no. And that's why this situation is fun because Louisville's not Florida. But keep an eye on it. But you can win at Louisville. You can win. You can have a Heisman Trophy winner. You can be you can. a top 10 team. You they can. just did it. You can. But lateral move and does not maximize maybe his own future. We'll see. We'll see. He is, as you said, an institution at Louisville. SEC roundup. Just a few results here. Allen, I am excited about this one because everyone knows I actually want Tennessee to be really good. That's the opposite of Florida State. I hate Tennessee, but I love it when they're good. It's the most fun game, I think, on Florida's schedule. They crush Kentucky 24-7. My guy Pruitt, who I continue to see on film, again, I didn't love the hire in the beginning, but I thought he was competent. But more importantly, every single week, this Tennessee team gets better. But I just want to ask you, was this just Kentucky quits? They had a small barge of error. Their season is over. Their dreams are dashed. Tennessee's more on the upswing. Is that all this was? Or, or should we look at this and think maybe Tennessee's going to become something decent? Maybe a little bit of both. But if I had to pick, I would say more likely that Georgia beat them twice. They they got their hopes and dreams ruined last week, and they don't have the collective winning mentality or winning culture to bounce back from a game like that. And this was a trap for them. Tennessee is a, an improving team. Garantano played decently well. I don't know. Um, I'm not, again, I'm slow to buy in on Pruitt. I get, but they are solid. They are solid. I don't know if they'll ever be good, but they are better than what they were week four yeah i think that's a thing if you're a tennessee fan like we mentioned with pruitt no one knows what his ceiling is yet and we're not even projecting that but clearly it's better than what they've had in a while it seems like that team is competent and getting better and that's something to take note of if you're a tennessee fan again i'm rooting for you tennessee i want the third saturday in the fall to mean something again few things are more fun in my sporting life vanderbilt gave missouri all that they could handle in yeah this wow game before missouri pulls it out 33 28 Again, a letdown maybe from a, a different kind of way. Huge win for Missouri, one of the biggest in the Odom regime. They beat Mullen and the Gators in a game that mattered. And then you're playing Vandy the next week. So I don't know. But Vandy's tough, too. When they'll, they'll sneak up on you. Yeah, and the difference is Vandy can actually pass the football, and we cannot. And that pretty much That's was true. the difference in that game. That's line. true. It's matchups, matchups, matchups. Old Miss 24, my favorite quarterback there, Tiamu. Texas A&M 38. Yeah, Tua would have been A&M. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I didn't watch a second of this game, but Jimbo Fisher, what what are they, 8-3 and three right now? 8-2? No, because they couldn't be 8-3. I don't think so. They've got three losses, right? Yeah, not two. Sorry, 8-3. and three. Are they 7-3? and three? I don't know. Yeah, seven. they couldn't be 8-3. 7-3? and three. Three, Whatever it is, There's it's good. Something. It's good. But it's a good year for them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, it's not a – I mean, Ole Miss, whatever – but holding them to 24 points is is decent for where they're at defensively. They put up – everyone's going to score against Ole Miss, whatever, 38 points. But, again, Jimbo Fisher getting it done, I guess. If you're an if you're an A&M fan, you have to be thrilled with what you've seen this year. They've had a rough little patch here in the past couple Excuse of Excuse me, weeks. A&M is 6-4, and four, but yeah, still a chance to win eight games. They haven't – yeah, they've had a rough middle patch. Uh, and I think, in general, you have to be thrilled, though, because this team is wonky, can't get what he wants out of Kellen Mond yet. They've had to – they fought Clemson to the end. Uh, but all in all, I think you're you're seeing that Jimbo is is doing very well on the recruiting trail right now. I would expect them to continue to improve every single year. I'm sure they're just giddy, uh, even though they are at six and four, not contending for anything. Well, they're going to win next week against UAB, and they have a shot to beat LSU at the end of the year. They do. That'll be a big game, actually. Kind of a big tester. So they are speaking of LSU, they barely hung on to beat Arkansas 
I don't even know how to describe this game. Uh, just weird all over. But LSU wins close against Arkansas. I don't know. Is that encouraging for Arkansas or disappointing for LSU? I think this is the, this is the example. So Kentucky had their hopes and dreams crushed, and they played not strong. And obviously LSU had every dream they've ever had, wanted, thought of, just eviscerated. If you've seen the video of Ed Orgeron walking in, I mentioned it last week, I mentioned it again, walking <laughs> yeah. into LSU Stadium before the Alabama game, you understand how just what a colossal fall it was that they lost the way they did. If you haven't seen it, please spend a minute and a half of your life watching it with the sound on. It will blow your mind. It is unbelievable. It is if he is Caesar walking into Rome, I promise you, you will thank me. Just pull it up. Ed Orgeron walks into stadium, Alabama game. It's absolutely amazing. And I think that that hurt them. Arkansas came back on them. If you're Chad Morris, I think you've had a weird little year, but I think that team is improving. And I think that's all you can ask for if you're kind of first-year coach. All right, James, let's talk very briefly about Idaho, the Vandals, one of my favorite nicknames in all of college football. Not a lot to note here. It is senior day, which is significant for the program, for us. Uh, it's at noon. They're four and six. They're FCS, so that's a division lower. When we scheduled them, they were FBS, but they have since dropped down. They are pretty terrible. They have a, you know, a middling record in FCS, so they're not like Georgia Southern from a couple years ago or something like that. Another FBS team that they played this year, Fresno State, beat them 79-13. to So not a lot to take away from this game. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of freshmen. You're going to see a lot of backups. You're going to see us hopefully crush them. Their coach is Paul Petrino. has been there his sixth year. I guess actually his son Mason Petrino is the quarterback. Doesn't matter what they do on offense or defense. They're not very good. They're a bad FCS team. Let's talk about first our injuries. Brad Stewart didn't play last week. Maybe he's day to day. Brett Heggie didn't play. We'd like him back. Swain was kind of a late scratch. Um, who knows? And then trashed out with a broken foot. So none of that should matter even against Idaho. Hopefully those. I doubt those guys would play at all in this game if they're at all unhealthy you want them healthy for fsu james before we get to the prediction keys game let's talk about emory jones very very interesting kind of management of resources uh i don't know game theory type stuff with emory because of the situation let me let me spell the situation with kyle trask kurt basically have two quarterbacks on the roster and not including walk-ons so you've got to make it through the season and you would not want to burn Emory Jones's red shirt. So it was important, actually, that Franks not get hurt this past game. That would have put us in a real pickle um, with the remaining games left on schedule. So Emory Jones can play in both these games, Idaho and Florida State. There's also the bowl game out there. And the prevailing wisdom for the bowl game is that you'd want to save one of these games, if possible, for these red shirt freshmen to play and kind of give them you know, a carrot like to look forward to something to motivate them through these bowl practices. If you're Dan Mullen, what do you do with Emory Jones? Do you play him like maybe almost the whole game against Idaho? Once we get up like, you know, 21, nothing or something like that, let him get a ton of reps and then play him against Florida state. Or do you not play him against Idaho? So you can utilize him against Florida state. Do you save the bowl game or do you play him in these two games? If I am Dan Mullen, Allen, I play Franks for the first quarter. 
maybe even less than that, maybe two drives. I treat it like an NFL preseason game in large part because I don't care what Franks does. I already know what he does. I know that. I'm damn well. I know what he does. I've seen it all the time. Nothing will be new. I'm just keeping him repped up so he's ready to roll against Florida State. And then I'm giving Emory the rest of the game. I'm giving Emory and everyone else that's worked their tail off all year long and has not seen the field a lot a ton of playing time in this game against Idaho. There's absolutely no reason not to. This game, I think, will be very interesting as a fan to watch it, uh, if you're especially like Alan and I, to see how Dan Mullen handles the new redshirt rule, to see how he handles building his roster. This game, if, if more than any other one, will dictate to recruits what it's like to play under Dan Mullen. He has a great opportunity to showcase to the guys he's recruiting now in high school. Here's the deal. You will play. I will give you minutes. You will play. Or he could be like a lot of other coaches, Alan, where these guys are going to come in maybe in the fourth quarter, maybe see a limited amount of action. I think that would be very subpar. You don't gain anything, just literally nothing, by repping against a team like Idaho if you're Florida with your starters. Nothing to be gained. Nothing to be gained. They will not make you better. It will, however, give you a chance to see actual game film of some of these guys that have not got to play a lot. It's crucial. So I'm excited about watching it this week. Therefore, for me, if I'm handling Emery, Emery's getting max playing time, three quarters, maybe plus a little bit more, depending on the first quarter goes. And then I'm probably not touching for Florida State. And I'm giving the bowl game. That's where I am. We're going to find out where Dan is. What would you do? I don't know. This is really interesting. I would like to play him. I would also like be interested in deploying him against FSU. If Trask was healthy, I think I would play Trask in this game and I would save Emory for FSU. That I Because you do need an actual backup quarterback. If you play him against Idaho and Franks gets hurt in the FSU game, you, play, you have to play him in that game and you can't play him in the bowl game. I guess that's fine. That's an okay outcome. Uh, and so there's some things, interesting things there, but I think I'm with you. I play him the whole Idaho game, unless I think he's not ready at all and I don't want to embarrass him. I guess that's part of a chance. That's part of the narrative as well. But if you think he's got what it takes, he's going to, you know, the competition level is so low that he's probably going to look good. So I think I would like to play him as much as possible. I'm with you. And let me throw a, a wrench into the system. Okay. And let's, let's get into the mind of Dan Mullen and let's get into the, the fears of a coach. I can tell you what Dan Mullen fears right now as he sits in his office at whatever hour you're listening to this. He fears this. If I play Emory three quarters against Idaho and he looks good, right? it doesn't matter to the fans that Idaho sucks. If he looks good, if he completes passes down the field, if we look explosive, I'm going to head into the Florida State game with a whole lot of fans wanting Emory Jones to play. If Franks comes out and sucks, calls for Emory Jones will be there. Now, this is not a home game, which in a way is helpful to this argument, but it's there. And that's why I'm saying it's going to be very interesting to see how Dan Mullen handles this because is he a coach that succumbs to his fears, which I think are irrational at this point in time. You're the coach, you handle the situation, you tell the fans how you're going to be doing it versus does he react to it and say, I fear my fan base reacting very positively to a great Emory Jones experience and then putting more on Franks, in which case maybe then Franks plays more than you think he would and Emory plays less, so that there's not a narrative for that. Something to pay attention to. Very interesting, yeah. Well, I think that's what will come out of this Idaho game for us. We'll be like, what do we do at quarterback? How is it interesting? Any of the young guys flash. Okay, James, give me a prediction. I guess name your score for Florida. Probably how do we 
how much do we push the envelope really? I think we can run the ball at will here, and this is going to be a, probably a phenomenal game for Pierce. Yeah. And Pierce is great. We know that. So I think by that alone, you expect the score to be 60s, 70s, or 80s to something. I, I think, you think Dan, we'd push it that high. I don't know if we can stop it, honestly. I mean, Idaho's a very bad FCS team. It's going to be hard for us not to just walk into 60 some odd points from running the ball. I think that's the thing, right? Uh, some FCS teams can stop the run. This one can't. So, yeah, I expect the score to be maybe 62 to 10 or something in that. Well, that's right? so crazy. I was just about to say 62 to 10. That's amazing, actually. We're channeling each other here. Yeah, I was going to say 62. Maybe, you know, you get the math that high. 66 to 10, whatever. Name your score for Florida. Like you said, um, if Emory Jones is breaking big runs, maybe you're going to see even a walk-on in the fourth quarter just to keep it a little less like embarrassing because you don't want to embarrass these Idaho players. It's not your goal. But if your third stringers are running that well, again, you know, this would be a game. I don't know if Iverson Clement is going to get in this game at running back with our running back injuries. No lemons, no Davis work. It's going to be the Pierce show, at least for a big chunk of this game, I bet. So good for him to get a lot of run in this game. All right, James, not much more to say about Idaho. Hopefully, you know, no one gets hurt. Emory Jones plays well. That's all you can hope for. Let's look at the national games. Yeah, and a more exciting, as a final note on Idaho, yeah. right? A more exciting game than it would have been thanks to this new redshirt rule. This makes it a lot Very more true. fun. This game normally is like, why are we even playing this game? And I'm actually excited about watching this game on Saturday. I really am. I'm excited about seeing some of these guys play. I know it's against Idaho, but you still want to see what they can do. And that's different than previous years. So I just want to note that this is this is a good opportunity. If you find yourself thinking... It's Idaho I'm not going to watch. I would tell you to do the opposite. You're, you're very likely to watch several guys who are going to be playing next year, play this year, and it's the first time you can see them. That's right. Have your roster open so you can be like, who's number 33? I don't know what, number 30. Um, and especially if somebody flashes, you can look up and see who that guy is. Weekend games. This is a this is a soft slate for college football. The SEC takes this weekend off like we I mean everyone's playing somebody yeah, slack. Everyone's cupping. And really the country kind of takes this off. There are a couple of good ones which we will highlight. Uh, we'll start with an interesting one, the Urban Meyer Health Watch if you will. Ohio State against Maryland. Ohio State favored by 16 and a half on the road. Maryland's a wonky wonky team, but I think Ohio State covers this. I I don't think Amer- Maryland has the firepower to pace Ohio State. I don't think they can do the things to mess with Ohio State that other teams can. Yeah, Maryland lost a tight game to Indiana last week. Ohio State, I think, is probably trending up a little bit here. This is a tune-up game for them. Maryland's feisty. They're they're especially feisty at random times, so they're unpredictable. But I'm going to say Ohio State covers the spread, although it feels high. Michigan State, interesting line here, Alan. Michigan State on the road against Nebraska. What if I told you that Michigan State was only favored by one and a half points? Well, that'd be nice. I'd, I'd want to take Nebraska. Interesting. Interesting. Three and seven Nebraska. I, in Michigan State, they obviously play great defense. They they play like caveman offense. So I think Nebraska is going to be able to put up a few points. And I, it's going to be close, I think. But I think Nebraska pulls this out. I think, if nothing else, this shows that Vegas thinks this Nebraska team is vastly improved over where they once were. They do not view the Ohio State game as a fluke, and they're That's using true. that as a common opponent. Those teams all just played each other, and they do not view that as fluky. 
So take that for what you will. That will be one to watch, though, to see as the Scott Frost experiment rolls on. Syracuse on the road against Notre Dame. I think this is the second most interesting matchup of the Agreed. weekend. Uh, Dino Babers has that team playing good football. Notre Dame favored by nine. If this was in Syracuse, I would really like the orange here. They play inside, you know, a dome. This is going to be probably bad weather. Man, that nine is just a little high, but I'll go ahead and take Notre Dame. But, be, I mean, I, if Syracuse won this game, I would not be surprised at all. Yeah, my bet here is either Notre Dame covers or Syracuse wins. I think that's – I really want to pick a Syracuse one, but I think at this point in time I've seen enough from Notre Dame to believe that I think that they're playoff bound. They're consistent. They're proving they can win each and every single week. I think that they're they're hitting their stride here. This is a good year for Brian Kelly. All right, West Virginia featured every single week on this podcast. Minus five against Oklahoma State. This is my favorite game of the week. I cannot wait to watch this game, the mullet versus Will Greer. There's so many good things going on here. Wow. Man, West Virginia, I don't know how you can bet against them this year. When When they're right, they're impossible to stop. Oklahoma State may be coming off a little bit of a a high against Oklahoma, like they're disappointing after a big emotional game. So I'll take Will Greer here. I like Will Greer and West Virginia primarily because West Virginia's defense is significantly better than Oklahoma State's. This road game is what makes it interesting. It's very right. hard to win in Stillwater. I think that's why the line is where it is. BC minus only one and a half, Allen, against Florida State. This is interesting. BC. What what is the status of some of their key players? Are they healthy? Their star running back Dylan looked like he was a shell of, of the guy that was kind of ripping people up last year in the beginning of this year. Man, I I don't know how you can pick FSU because you're basically picking them straight up. Um, but FSU could win this game because of how banged up BC is, but I'll still take BC. I'm taking BC. It's hard to imagine FSU beating anyone that's got a pulse, and BC has a pulse. I don't care if they're missing their quarterback, their running back, and someone else. Florida State, I mean, it doesn't mean they couldn't do it, but at this point, I'm mean, going to lay a bet. I'm not betting on Florida State. Cincinnati versus UCF. UCF minus 7.5. Cincinnati 9-1. and one. College game day in Orlando for this game. I'm wow. sure the UCF fans are ecstatic. They deserve it. They're defending national champions. <laughs> oh, gosh. Get out of here. 7.5 point favorites ever since they were like. I mean, I would love nothing more than Luke Fickle and the Bearcats to take them down. I'm so tired of UCF. Gosh, this would be just their comeuppance. And they brought it themselves. If they were just the plucky, hey, man, we were out left out. The fact that they call themselves national champions makes me want them to lose every week. I don't know if they will. Seven and a half is not that big a number. I'll take UCF. Yeah, small number. You got to take UCF until proven otherwise. And the lines came out. You can bet on a mythical Alabama versus UCF game if they somehow made the playoffs. And that line is a 31-point line. Right that now, shows you where UCF is. Which would tell you that UCF would be, not surprisingly here, one of the worst teams in the SEC, Vegas book-wise, if they were in the SEC. Again, we've said that all year long. We're not taking anything away from UCF. I'm I, taking it I away from them. I'll take away say, that national championship. I continue to say that I won an 18 playoff so that Cinderella has a chance to be Cinderella. I don't like that our socialist system of football makes me hate the Cinderellas. <laughs> but in fairness to in fairness to the reality is UCF fans, if you're listening to this podcast, you guys, you all suck. You're delusional. Yeah, you're freaking ridiculous. Stop it. Like no one wants to root for you because you're obnoxiously out of touch and ridiculous. So embrace the Cinderella role, not the Goliath role. You're not Goliath. Just stop it. Iowa State 
on the road against Texas. Again, Texas has played the greatest schedule every single week. Something well, they're on here every week. Texas only favored by three in this game. Matt Campbell and the Clones. I love picking them. This number is low. If it was higher, I'd certainly take Iowa State to keep it close. Texas at home only favored by three. That, that tells you they think these teams are equal. Man, I'm really struggling with this one. I'm gonna, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and take Iowa State. I like Texas at home because Iowa State's so much better at home. Do you think the Tom Herman rumors have anything to do with this? If you guys haven't heard this, you will at some point. Uh, former assistant, not getting too lurid. Former Urban Meyer assistant uh, who is on the rampage now, deciding to out everyone because his college football career is over, and so he's taking everyone down with him, has made Tom Herman, his old friend and a boy, his target. And he now is suggesting Tom Herman has done all sorts of adulterous things uh, via Twitter. Does that take any effect on this Texas team? This Maybe week? it does. Well, I mean, is, is Tom Herman's head right? Who knows? Is this affecting the team? Who knows? Yeah, if, gosh, if you're a gambler, maybe stay away from this game unless you got a real feel for one way or the other. I don't know. Crazy. Yeah, life and times in college football. Any other items, Alan, for this podcast? You know, I, I agree with you what you said about Idaho. This is a game that could be just easy to just shuck aside. But if you're a real fan, it's a fun game to watch because you get to see the future, you know, hopefully stars of this program play well. Um, so don't don't get too crazy, though, after we blow up. Idaho and be like, yes, we're back to scoring a ton of points. If we don't score a ton of points, it's bad. But enjoy this week, and we'll get ready for FSU next week. Once upon a time, there was an NCAA football game that I had before the Northwestern players ruined it for all of us. (laughs) There is no longer an NCAA football game. And in that football game, Alan, I built a dynasty with the Idaho Vandals. Congrats. They are very close to my heart. I'm pretty excited about seeing I have an Idaho Vandals hat. I'm pretty excited about seeing Idaho play, even though they're no longer an FBS team, because I have a lot of memories of just smashing teams with Idaho back in the day on that game. So I Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.